This morning I'll be reading from Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 22 through 28. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing water, like the sound of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so the radiance was around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside the announcement sheet, if you've not already found it, is an outline that you can use as we go through this study of Ezekiel this morning. For those of you who are visiting with us for the very first time, we started in January a series of messages, January to to December, that's going to go through every book of the entire Bible. This morning we're going to be looking at Ezekiel. It's going to be sort of a one-off sermon Uh, there's there's so much that you could talk about when it comes to Ezekiel. We're not going to have a whole lot of time this morning to talk about all of the the dramatic, theatrical kinds of things that are found in in Ezekiel. We're not going to be able to talk about a lot of the Son of Man passages or some of the the other passages that are really salient uh, to, to a lot of the theology that you read in the Bible. What we're going to do this morning is really kind of start at the beginning of Ezekiel and get to the end with kind of an overview of what Ezekiel is trying to communicate to people. And what we want to do is to remind ourselves that the Bible is really the story about God and about Jesus and about man and about sin. There's a statement that we use, kind of a a theme statement, as we go through the Bible this year. It's up here on the screen. You can write it down on your outline. But the statement is this, and you know it, I think, very well by now. The Bible is not a collection of random stories. It's not. It is one story about God and about man and about what went wrong and what God is doing to put it back together. And that is where we're going to jump off into the book of Ezekiel. Before we do that, though, let's pray and then let's press our minds into this text. Father, we're grateful for this beautiful morning. And it's not beautiful, Father, because we are dressed in our best or because the day is beautiful or that we even find ourselves in this this lovely building. But it's beautiful, Father, because of the radiance of Your glory that is, is a reminder of Your presence with us at all times. You are beautiful beyond our, our words to, to describe and to convey it. We're so thankful that You draw near to us in such a way that we are changed and blessed and saved and made whole, and, and, and brought into hope, and into love, Father, and into everlasting life. 
And while we feel the tension of life in this fallen world, Father, we look forward to the day where we see You face to face. And we don't have to worry about fainting in Your presence as, as Jason has read that Your servant Ezekiel did when he realized that he was in Your glory. But that that's going to be the everyday experience of, of eternity with You. And so to this end, Father, we, we, we pray for courage to, to live rightly in Your sight. We, we pray, Father, for hearts and, and for souls made, made soft in order to love You deeply and profoundly the way that we should. And, and we pray, Father, we pray to find Your presence in all that we do and all that we see. So as we think about Ezekiel, Father, and the problems and the blessings and all of these things that he addresses, our prayer this morning in the name of Jesus is that you will give us eyes that see it and ears to hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all the church said. Year 622 B.C. is where we began. And in that year, there was a baby boy that was born and his parents gave him a name, which in Hebrew means, God, may God strengthen him. May God strengthen him. And that is the word in Hebrew, Ezekiel. May God strengthen him. Now, believe it or not, 622 B.C. was an exciting year to be born in. The book of the law had been discovered that year in the temple. King Josiah had been instituting religious uh, reforms in South Judah for about five years, and he had been encouraged and spurred on to do that by this young prophet by the name of Jeremiah. The pagan places of worship and all of those high places that we have read about are being torn down, and all of those priests that had, had served those idols in all of those high places who had, had serviced them are being removed as well. You'll remember that about a hundred years prior to this, about a century before the time of King Josiah, there was a king by the name of Ahaz who had made South Judah a vassal state to Assyria in order to enlist Assyria's help against Damascus and against North Israel in the Syro-Ephraimitic War. Now Assyria had made them a vassal state. They had been that way for about a century But all of a sudden, Assyria and its power and its empire is beginning to diminish. Assyria is beginning to weaken. It's beginning to unravel at the seams. And there is this hope in South Judah, especially with King Josiah instituting all of these spiritual religious reforms, that they would finally be free from from being a vassal state and paying tribute and being under the thumb of Assyria and that they could be their own nation. And all of that's beginning to stir in their hearts. But here's the problem. It was one thing to get rid of the idols from the high places. It was another thing altogether to remove idolatry from the hearts and the minds of the people. The land, even with all of the reform that Josiah was bringing about, the land was still soaked in in idols. And what this did was create a, a great and insufferable contradiction. The ensuing social injustice in the land because of the neglect of Torah. People were not living by Torah. They were not allowing Torah to to guide their steps and to give parameters to the way that they treated one another. Because they did not live by Torah, this did not allow the worship of Yahweh, the worship of God, to flourish in the people's hearts. And therefore, God was not being moved to the center of their, their reality. And at one point during this historical period of time, 
Jeremiah himself has to go and stand in the middle of the temple and preach that unless South Judah repents of all of its sins and moves God to the center of all things and makes God the supreme value of all that there is, then what happened to Shiloh centuries earlier and what had happened to those ten tribes in the north because of their idolatry and because of their neglect of Torah and, and moving away from God, that was going to happen to South Judah. You know the story. All of those warnings were ignored. And so about 609 B.C., Josiah is killed in battle when the Egyptian Pharaoh Necho is taking his army up with the Assyrians to fight against the Babylonians. The Babylonians are ascending in power now. Egypt now runs things in south Judah because they had killed the king and they placed their own king in Josiah's place. But that's not going to happen for very long. Babylon is going to prevail against Assyria. And then after that, Nebuchadnezzar crushes Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. And as you know from your knowledge of, 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 uh, of these ancient civilizations, one of the first things that Nebuchadnezzar does now that, that he has crushed Egypt and he takes all of Egypt's vassal states of which South Judah was one, and he begins to carry their nobility to deport their nobility to Babylon. He's making a statement. And this is the first deportation or exile of the people from Jerusalem into Babylon. And we're going to be looking at that next week in Daniel chapter 1. This is the time when Daniel and his three friends are taken to Babylon. Well, there is a new king. His name is Jehoiakim. He is taken over from, from, his, uh, from Josiah. He begins, after a period of time, to begin to feel that, you know, he does not want to be a vassal to, or Israel, South Judah, to be a vassal state to Babylon anymore. He's beginning to feel his, fill his oats a little bit. And so he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar around 598, 597 B.C. Now, believe it or not, and this is really out of character for Nebuchadnezzar, he is relatively merciful at this time as he puts down and squelches that, that rebellion in Jerusalem. But because he wants to discourage any future rebellion against him, he carries more of the Jewish nobility and more of the Jewish people into captivity. This is the second deportation from Jerusalem into Babylon. First time Daniel and his friends end up in Babylon. This time Ezekiel and his people are carried into Babylon. The second exile. Some years later, Zedekiah, Zedekiah is king in Jerusalem. This will be the third time that they really rise up against Babylon. He, rebe he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, who had been patient during that second deportation, that second rebellion, he begins to lose his patience. And it's, it's now at an end, any patience that he has with Jerusalem. And so the might of Babylon comes down hard on Jerusalem. The walls around that city, and they are massive, are, are completely torn down. The Jewish army knows that it's about to be routed, so they find an exit out of the city. They, they are fleeing with King Zedekiah, but the Babylonian army catches them out there in, in the middle of that countryside and cuts them down. The temple, the palace, much of the city is razed to the ground. And out there in that countryside where Zedekiah has watched his army get cut down, Zedekiah is forced by Nebuchadnezzar to watch the execution of all of his sons right there in front of him. And after he has seen that, he is blinded by Nebuchadnezzar, put in chains, and carried off into Babylon. Now that is the happy-go-lucky context of Ezekiel. The historical context of the ministry of this prophet it, it, is, it is in 
the full experience of brutality and anguish and disappointment and frustration and exile and shock. Ezekiel is hundreds of miles from Jerusalem. He's a hundred miles, uh, hundreds of miles from the presence of the temple, which means in the way that Ezekiel thinks about life, he's hundreds of miles away from the presence of God. Judah is being led before the complete fall in 586. Judah is being led by spiritually weak and faithless kings. There are prophets that are rising up, but nobody is listening to them. There is fear in the people that are in exile that the disappearance of those ten tribes in the north 150 years earlier, when they went into Assyrian captivity and were never seen again, there is fear among the exiles that that's the fate awaiting South Judah that all 12 tribes will disappear. And then we read the first chapter of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's call to prophecy is at the beginning of the book. It's really the first three chapters of the book. He has gone down in that Babylonian captivity. He's in uh, Tel Aviv. He has gone down to the Kabar River, which is probably... All of these, these Babylonian cities, you know, they were, they were connected by the Tigris and the Euphrates and there were canal systems that brought water from those rivers into the city. The Kabar River is probably one of these canals in that irrigation system. And that's where he is when the words to Psalm 137 are being penned by the psalmist. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded the songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And while he's down there, and where the, the, the emotions that are expressed in Psalm 137 are just banging around in his heart, there's this storm that brews, and Ezekiel sees four living creatures with wings and with faces, and their faces have four dimensions to them. Those dimensions are human and lion and oxen and eagle. And in the midst of these creatures, we read this in verse 13, there was like this fire, this burning coal that was in the middle of it, and they're darting here and there at this amazing speed. And corresponding to them are these wheels, these gigantic wheels where the rims are full of eyes. And all of this corresponds to the living creatures. Now what in the world is he looking at? Well, we go over to chapter 10 and verse 20 and they are identified for us. In chapter 10, Ezekiel understands that the living creatures that he had seen beneath the God of Israel by the Kabar River, he realized that they are what? The cherubim. He is seeing the servants of God. And as you read this first chapter, you'll, you'll notice that it's dominated with words like something like, or like, or likeness, or appearance. And there's a reason for that. The reason that he's using words uh, that it was something like, that it's in the appearance of, that it looked like, is because Ezekiel is seeing something that human words cannot fully convey. It's so stunning to him that he faints right there on his face. And the reason is because he understands, he comes to the, the, the cognizant realization that he is in the presence of the glory of God. 
Can you imagine how stunning that is for, for a Jewish person who thought that God was, was tied to the temple, that God was not in the nations, but that God was at the temple. Now, he's been, travel, he's been taken and has traveled, but he's been taken in exile hundreds of miles from the temple to find that he, by the, by the river Kabar, is in the presence of God, was astounding and shocking and stunning. It was astonishing to him. And the glory overwhelmed him at some point, and he dropped to the ground. It was like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. It was so beautiful. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. This vision, now Ezekiel is not set in the most positive of circumstances. But this vision sets up the rest of the book like the vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. You'll remember when you read Revelation chapter 1, John is in exile. He's on the island of Patmos. He's sort of the last man standing at this point, the last apostle standing. The, the Roman Empire has spread throughout all of the known world at that time. They seem to be mighty. There's going to be a period of time where the Roman Empire is actually going to try and squelch the, the Christian church by persecution and by killing and by persecution and by torture. And in the middle of, of this exile, in, in the middle of loneliness and solitude, on the island of Patmos, John receives this vision of Jesus that is so stunning that all he can do is fall on his face like he's dead. And it's that vision that sets up the rest of the book of Revelation. Same thing happening here in Ezekiel. What John sees in that, that revelation of, of the risen, glorified Christ is that Rome is not almighty, but God is. And that's what's happening in Ezekiel chapter 1. The, the historical context is terrible. Everything is falling apart for God's people in the eyes of, of Ezekiel. Then all of a sudden he finds himself in the presence of God and it sets up the rest of the book. Babylon is not almighty. God is. And that's really the first point that, that Ezekiel tries to make, is that God is the, with capital T, capital H, capital E, the reality. He is the reality. And one of the themes of Ezekiel is that God is at the center and the supreme value of everything. The theologians, I forgot which one it was, it coined it, but it talks about Ezekiel's radical theocentric message, which is basically another way of saying that there is this radically uncompromising God is at the center theme or message that runs throughout Ezekiel. God is at the center and God is the supreme value of the universe. And yet that fact was not taken seriously, which was the problem. Second point, God's presence should be taken seriously. God is the reality. God's presence should be taken seriously. The story, unfortunately, of Israel is a story of covenantal relationship with God that is a story of disloyalty to God who saved them and with whom that they have entered into this intimate relationship, unique kind of covenantal relationship with. And so in Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 3, God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. And it's here in the second chapter that we begin to run into a couple of, of, of phrases or words that Ezekiel is going to use throughout the rest of the book. The first is the word abomination. 
Abomination, believe it or not, found 93 times in the book of Ezekiel. And it's used to describe the horror of Judah's sins against God. And one of the ironies here is that the word abomination is only applied to, to, to the Jewish people, never applied to the nations. The abomination is what's happening in the relationship, the unfaithful relationship between God and His people. And then the second phrase is, will know that I am the Lord, or will know that I am God. Some variant form of that or those words exactly were found about 72 times in the book. And it's used in connection with judgment. And it's used to emphasize why that judgment is coming. You know why judgment is coming? It's because of the sin. But the judgment is coming in order for the people to know that God is God. He is the reality. He is at the center of all things. The supreme value of the universe. And so an example. Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel's in his own house there in Babylon. He's sitting with the elders of Israel. And the Spirit appears. And every time the Spirit appears to Ezekiel in the book of Ezekiel, I, I can imagine Ezekiel just kind of beginning to break out in the cold sweats because it's never a very comfortable or easy thing to do. And this is no exception. The, the, the Spirit appears to to Ezekiel while he's in his own house there in Babylon. He's sitting with the elders of Israel. And the Spirit grabs Ezekiel by the hair and yanks him all the way from the Kabar River in Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And as he's going there, the Spirit says, I want to show you, Ezekiel, the very things that are going to drive the glory of God away from this temple and from this city and from this people. And so they get to the temple precincts and what is the first thing that Ezekiel sees? It's idols. There are idols all over the temple grounds. Secondly, there are idols that are even carved into the walls of the temple court. And there are 70 priests that are inside those walls, not on the outside, but inside those walls where those idols are carved into the walls and they're offering incense. And then the Spirit grabs Ezekiel by the hair again and takes him to the north gate. And what he finds are lots of women that are, are involved with the Sumerian god Tammuz. And then he's taken to the entrance of the temple and he finds 25 men bowing down to the sun in the east there. And the Spirit's point is that idolatry and faithlessness and defilement and uncleanness and disloyalty and spiritual adultery have overtaken even the temple itself. And because that's what Ezekiel sees, an indescribably horrible and dreadful thing happens in chapter 10. The glory of God departs from the temple. The glory that showed up on that day when Solomon prays a prayer of dedication, at the end of that prayer, the glory of God descends on that temple and goes inside of that Holy of Holies. That glory, that Shekinah, that Kavod, the the heaviness of God's essence, leaves the temple. Verse 18. The glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. The problem is that Jerusalem shares a family resemblance to Samaria and Sodom. That's what Ezekiel says. The reason that there's this problem, the reason that that God's glory has left Jerusalem is because Jerusalem shares a family resemblance to, number one, Samaria, and then, number two, to Sodom. And all of that's evidenced by the falling to the same levels of wickedness in the way that they live, even though they are in covenant with God. I mean, you are living... In, in that that 6th century B.C. And all of a sudden, the glory of God is departing from the temple and you're being told that you have a family, your people resemble the people of Samaria and the people of Sodom. Preposterous. 
the truth. And so in Ezekiel chapter 16, beginning in verse 46, your older sister was Samaria, who lived to the north of you with her daughters, and your younger sister, who lived to the south of you with her daughters, was whom? Sodom. You not only followed their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways you soon became what? What, church? More depraved than they. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. So God sends Judah into exile and He abandons the temple because it violated the covenant because Judah was filled with abominations and because of all of its uncleanness. And yet, God spares a remnant. Which not only signals hope, it signals a very specific hope that God is going to bring His people back into His presence. In Ezekiel chapter 16, beginning in verse 59, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised My oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And one of the things it said over and over again in Ezekiel, you'll find it also in chapter 20, is that God and His people, His people who are faithful, His spiritual children, His spiritual family will be reunited. And so the last thing we'll talk about is God will save and restore His people. You know, even though Jerusalem has been rocked, and raised to the ground. God is not done with His people. God will bring His people back to the land. And the restoration is not just going to be physical. I mean, what would the good be if it was just physical and the people in their hearts had not changed? So we find what God is going to do with this, this, this new people in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And he goes on to say that he will sprinkle clean water on them to cleanse them from their defilement. He also says that there's this new Eden that's coming. You drop down to verse or drop back to verse 25. They will say this land that was laid waste has become like a garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. But you know, you can imagine how hard it was to listen to those kinds of promises when the state of Israel, the state of Judah, is desolation. The nation is in exile. The holy city is in ruins. All of the, the brain trust and, and the nobility and, and the greatness of the people of, uh, of Judah, South Judah, have been taken off into Babylonian captivity. It's hard to believe that that kind of promise in the middle of that kind of desolation will come true. In the middle of desolation, a new Garden of Eden? And that's why we have God taking Ezekiel again to the middle of a valley. A valley of dead, sun-bleached bones. Now, this, this is really appalling for Ezekiel to stand in the middle of this valley and to see, as far as his eye can see, a, a mass of unburied bones that has been in the sun for so long that it's, it's bleached. They are drier than dry. And Ezekiel is asked, Son of man, can these bones live? 
Ezekiel's standing in the middle of a valley where, as far as his eye can see, there are the deadest, driest bones imaginable. They're just layer of layer and layer of, and as far as he can see, mile after mile of these dead bones. And while he's standing there trying to get his mind around all of this death, God asks him, what do you think, Ezekiel? Can these come back to life? And then he says to Ezekiel, I want you to preach to the bones. Preach to the bones, Ezekiel. And there's irony here. You know, your ears have lots of bones, but the last time I checked, bones do not have ears. And God says to him, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into the slain that they may, what? Live. I will be their God. Excuse me. So I prophesied as He commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet. And not only is there going to be life that is going to be returning, but the glory of God is going to return as well. And so in verses 26, 27, and 28... God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. And I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, that I the Lord make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them. You know, a feature of all of this is that the kingdom that was taken from Zedekiah is going to be given back. It's going to be given back to a future Davidic king. He's not going to be like those false shepherds that are indicted and, 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 and judged in chapter 34. He's not going to be the kind of shepherd that is going to, 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 to scatter the sheep and put the sheep astray throughout all of the land. He will search for the lost sheep and He will care for them. Notice verse 26. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Take off the turban, remove the crown. It will not be as it was. The lowly will be exalted. The exalted will be brought low. A ruin. A ruin. I will make it a ruin. The crown will not be restored until He to whom it rightfully belongs shall come. To Him, I'm going to give that crown. And this particular king will rule forever. And in verse 25 of Ezekiel 37, David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And then believe it or not, six centuries later, many years later, in this same city, the city of Jerusalem, there was a descendant of David who stood up among the people in the city and said, I am the Good Shepherd. He is the one who gathers the sheep and doesn't scatter them. And how is it that He does this? How is it that He, this one, is the Good Shepherd? Is because in love and in mercy and compassion, He does not allow God's judgment to fall upon the people, but to fall upon Himself. And instead of the people being taken into exile, He goes into exile For a period of time, He goes to that place where, presumably, our sins will take us. But then He comes back. More glorious 
than ever. And exalted to the right hand of God. This Jesus. This Jesus. Who is not just the Davidic King, but is our Savior. Because as Paul will tell the church in Corinth, God, instead of putting our sins on ourselves and sealing them to us, and making us pay by sending us into exile out of His presence. As Gilbert said, God in His holiness cannot exist in our state of sin. Instead of sending us into exile, send His own Son with our sins on top of Him into that exile so that we might always be in the glory of God itself forever and ever. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And, and maybe... Maybe you've never experienced that stone heart when it comes to all things God being blessed by the presence of God's Spirit being put in it. Maybe you've never been washed clean. Maybe you've never, because of, 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 of hopelessness, that you would ever be able to do things on your own to make yourself right with God, have come to that place where you're willing to accept the fact that maybe God is going to do it all for you. That you in faith and in trust for what Christ has done will receive His righteousness in you. In order that you might become embraced, might be called a son, adopted, adopted into God's family. And never sent from His presence. Ever, ever, ever. If that describes you this morning, then some of our shepherds, our good shepherds, are going to be down here at the front. And if there are spiritual needs that they can minister to you about, then we want you to come down during the praising of God with this next song. Let's sing and praise God together. Let's stand and... I will sing of my...